0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. And we are in chapter 13, uh, talking about the law of love. The flow of this book, the the argument that Paul has been making, especially uh, in the most recent chapters, chapters 12 and chapter 13, is getting really practical you come to a place where you believe that God is real, that he exists, that he was represented uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came to earth as Jesus and demonstrated his love, that he went to the cross and died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that he wants to literally take up residence in our lives and use us to spread his truth and his love into a dark world that that's what all the book of Romans really leads up to and and brings us to the point where we say, okay, how do I do that? What does that look like? And he starts getting really practical in these chapters that we've been studying, how to live a life that glorifies God, that brings who God is to light, where people can see him through the choices that we make. How do we live our lives for God? And he talks about things like loving your enemies and hating a boring, he says, what is evil? Being in the world, being a part of and moving within a world that doesn't know God and that understanding that huge parts of the world are actually hostile toward God, but also understanding that human beings are not our enemies. They're the mission." Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost, meaning the people who are far farthest from God are the ones he is going to stretch the furthest to reach. Last week, you guys talked about government and how... Governmental authorities are a part of that fallen, broken human system, but that we as believers and followers of God, we believe in structure. We believe in authority. We reject anarchy. And we believe that we have to work within the fallen, broken systems of men and, and bring about the truth of God while respecting those who we disagree with. And so it becomes this very complicated world for us to live in. If we want to follow after God and live our lives for him, if we want to be in the world, if we want to critique the world, if we want to look at the way things are going and look at things like selfishness, pride, evil, look at those things and say, that is not the way that it should be. And that we want to, Give people hope and let them see that there is something greater than ourselves, that our creator God wants a personal relationship with us, and that he has said to us that they will know you by your love for one another, that we demonstrate who God is by love. Well, we're going to have to make some pretty complicated choices in terms of what we demonstrate as what is right and what is wrong. And for a walking Christian, we call this walking with God, somebody who is living their life and trying to live consistently with the love that God has laid before us, it becomes an everyday, complicated, ethical dilemma. There are going to be daily decisions that need to be made that are Offered forth by a fallen, broken world system. What are you, as a follower of God, going to do? And what is our basis, then, for making those decisions? How do we know what God's will is? And how do we demonstrate who God is through our moral framework? And it gets pretty complicated. You know, Ben talked to you last week about, you know, obeying secular authorities. Working within that secular system. But you also saw demonstrations in the Bible of where people trust and they they obey authority as far as they can. But God is the highest authority. So an example in Acts 2, when the governmental authorities go to Peter and say, you can no longer preach Jesus Christ, what does he say? He says, I would love to obey you, but I have to obey God rather than men. There is a point where we cannot go beyond there is a point where we cannot obey. And where do we draw that line? That's an ethical question, a complicated ethical question. You saw from the passage that he says, go, they say go as far as continue to pay your taxes, right? Even to an incredibly far more corrupt and evil empire than anything remotely like what we have here in the United States. Nero was an evil man. But they say, pay your taxes. That money goes where? Into Nero's coffers to do what it is that he will. What's my ethical basis for doing that? And where would I draw the line? These get hard. These important ethical decisions. The world never quits presenting us with more and more challenging ethical decisions. And the Bible has some very clear instructions for us. I don't mean to say at all that, you know, and so we look at our Bible and we still don't know what to do. It's very clear, right? And we can just go to the biggies, right? We can go to the big, you know, the commandments, the ones written in stone by the finger of God. And we can look at them and say, thou shall not kill. That's pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Don't kill, right? God says life matters. Life is precious. So don't kill. Well, okay, but it does get a little gray. What about in self-defense? What if someone breaks into my home at night and threatens to kill my children? What if I have to kill someone else in order to keep 10 people alive? Do I not kill then? It, It can get kind of confusing. What if... What should my stance be on the death penalty? The Bible says thou shalt not kill. Romans 12 and 13 says that the state bears the sword for a reason. How do I as a person living in a democracy make a decision about my stance on that that honors God? That's a complicated question. What if I'm a soldier? What if I uh, am an agent of the state, right? And I'm called into situations where I'm called on by the government to take life. How am I to think about that? How am I to wrestle with that and understand that as somebody who wants to live their life for God? So on the one hand, there's some very clear things, but And the day-to-day outpouring of how we live as followers of Jesus Christ, it can get pretty complicated. Thou shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie, it says. What about the little white lies? What about when my spouse says, does this make me look fat? Your husband says, is my butt disappearing into my back? You know? Is it? Is it morally wrong to fudge the truth in those situations? <laughs> Is it wise? <laughs> what are we to do? What if I could tell a lie that would save other people's lives? And these aren't hypothetical. I mean, that, that has happened over, over again. In the course of human history, Christians have had to make decisions. Do I lie for the greater good? Or do I tell the truth because thou shalt not bear false witness? You see, my point is is that we, we face really difficult issues. We live in a complicated world where as believers and followers of God, we face moral and ethical dilemmas on a daily basis. What's my take on abortion, gay marriage, and waterboarding? Some of you are like, I can't believe he even brought those things up. Because they're so hard to talk about in our culture. But we should have an answer for what we think about those things. But where's our starting point? How do we answer what we think as we want to follow God? How do we develop a framework? What's a Christian to do? As all of these complicated situations present themselves. What we need is a biblical framework for ethics, a a structure that we can uh, put these dilemmas through and come out with answers that we're confident God would stand behind. Because ultimately, if you're a follower of God, what you want to do is to please God. You want to represent him accurately. And you don't want to betray him by demonstrating something that's not true about him. So we need scriptural principles to apply to modern circumstances in deeply personal situations. So we go to Romans chapter 13, and we start in verse 8, and he says, "'Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. "'For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law.'" For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. (coughs) You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You see what he's saying is, He's saying, you know, we have these commands and the commands are good and they should be followed and they're informative and they teach us what we should do. Don't steal, don't lie, don't kill. Be faithful to your spouse. But all of that can be summed up in the idea of love. The whole law, he says, the whole will of God and the whole thing that God wants you to understand about him and the way he made you is love. And whatever framework we build to grapple with those difficult, moral, ethical, complicated situations that the world throws in front of us at the root of it, at the heart of it, is love. Love is the overriding virtue. It is the thing In the Bible, it's so much more important than anything else. And all ethical decisions need to pass the love test. Is this the thing that I can do that is most consistent with the love of God and demonstrating the love of God? Is there an option that's consistent with God's Word? That's the first question as we look through this. If it's clear from Scripture... We are not free to overturn Scripture. As much as our culture would like us to do that. As much as our culture would like us to say, well, things change. We live in a modern society. And the Bible, it needs an updating. God says, I am God and I am always God and I am the same as I always have been. I don't change. And my word doesn't change. So when we look for answers, we have to look for what the word of God says. But when we get into some of these more complicated gray areas where it's not clear, maybe it's clear what God says, but it's not clear how to live it out in this particular specific situation, then we have to ask that question, what is more consistent with God's love? Love is the guide when things become unclear, and it's always been this way. 1 John 4, 16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What is God about? What is the God of Bible? the, the, the Bible about? He is about love. He says it's the, it's the defining characteristic of who he is. He is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It doesn't matter how good of a rhetorician you are, how good your speech is. If what you say lacks love, you're annoying and going to accomplish nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Think about that. You have the gift of prophecy where you can say the truth of God. And you have faith. I think the Bible holds faith as being pretty important. But faith without love, he says, is nothing. It's incredible. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits nothing. You can be a martyr. You can sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. But if you do it without love, it is a waste of time, according to God. Nothing is more important than love. 1 Corinthians 13:13. But now faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest is love. We're not just going to pull from, you know, one obscure passage here. God is clear over and over and over and over and over. Love is where it's at. His love. And whatever decision-making process we have, Love must be at the foundation of it. And he says over and over again in both the Old and New Testaments that the law, which is just as we've studied through Romans, you know what the law is. The law is the ultimate revelation, the ultimate revealing of God's character, of his nature, of who he is. It's the ultimate expression of him. And so the law itself is love. It shows us the way to true love. And in it are black and white guidelines for God's will regarding our behavior. Very clear instructions. Consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. Right? No greater love can a man have than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Those are clear instructions. But sometimes, often, we have to figure out what that looks like in the context of a very complicated moral environment where there is all kinds of evil swirling around. And what's a Christian to do? What are we to do when it's not clear from Scripture what is right? Philosophers have pondered ethics for thousands of years they've divided it into different schools that are helpful i think for us thinking through this process as followers of jesus christ what are some different ways of approaching this issue of ethics one way is called deontology the deontologist says that black and white adherence to the law is what matters if the law says you shall not bear false witness, then you shall not lie regardless of the consequences. Never kill, never steal, never lie. It's clear. You do not break these things ever. It's a very simple, straightforward way of approaching these things. But it gets pretty weird and complicated when you think about People doing things like hiding refugees from people who want to kill them and lying about it. And say, well, they shouldn't have lied. When those Nazis came to the door looking for the Jews and said, are there any Jews here? You should have said, yep, four of them. Please don't kill them. I'm a Christian. Right? The Underground Railroad where slaves were being, were being freed and brought north into new lives, stealing property according to the law. Deontology is a very rigid system. It's consistent. But is that what Scripture holds forth as what we should follow? We should have thoughts about that. Another ethical system would be called consequentialism. Consequentialism looks at the consequences of conduct. It says the outcome determines whether or not something is morally right or wrong. Now, that sounds pretty practical, right? And maybe that's a good system where I can say, well, if what I do creates more good and more love, then it's the right thing to do. And so I should just look at each situation, determine what the consequences will be, and decide whether or not it's worth it or not. And that's very attractive. That sounds very good, but... You know, if we're honest, consequences are often very difficult to predict. I can't remember the last time something had the consequence that I predicted it would. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, what's the statute of limitations, right? Sometimes I do something and I think it's going to be good and it turns out to be good for a month. And then a year later, I look back at it as a disaster. Was it a good thing or was it a bad thing that I just did? Or maybe I do something terrible that causes all kinds of calamity and destruction, but a hundred years later, it looks like it's the right thing to do. You all of a sudden have good or evil on a sliding scale that's not consistent with itself. You might do one thing in one situation and another thing in another, and they might completely contradict each other, but as long as the consequences are what you want. And the results are also very subjective what is good or what is evil and what is the greatest good or the greatest evil can be very difficult to determine. A strict consequentialist has to say uh, the Holocaust is good for Israel because Israel would not exist if a million Jews hadn't died in the ovens of Hitler because the world gained sympathy and created a new nation for the people of Israel as a result of the events of World War II. So, nope, we can check that one off, right? We're not willing to say that that's good, but a consequentialist has to. And so there are problems. There's what we call situational ethicists which is similar to consequentialism, but basically what they say is that each situation presents its own set of variables and you need to look and deal with each situation as it comes. Ignore the black and white laws and focus on each situation. I don't need to be consistent with myself. I just need to do what I think is best in each given moment. But in that situation, morals become relative. Killing in one situation is good. Killing in another situation is evil. What's the difference? My opinion. It sets me up to be my own God. I become the ultimate instrument for deciding right and wrong. And I have no moral accountability for my choices. I am the ultimate judge. And I don't need to be consistent with myself because no two situations are the same. How do you hold someone accountable for their choices if everybody believes in situational ethics? You could never punish anybody for doing anything wrong as long as they sincerely believe that they did what was right given the situation in front of them. It causes real problems. And then finally, we arrive at what we would call hierarchical ethics. And this is where I think Scripture falls, and I'm going to demonstrate this for you. But hierarchical ethics says the laws are good. The black and white laws are good, and they're a moral guide, and they're to be respected. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not kill. Those are guides that are real and useful and meaningful. But there are some virtues that carry more weight. There are weightier portions of the law. And as people living in a fallen world, Sometimes I have to choose not between the right thing and the wrong thing, but the wrong thing and the less wrong thing. Because I don't live in a perfect world where I can always do exactly the right thing. I have to sometimes choose the lesser of evils. And what's the framework for making those choices? Love. Love. The law works in most cases. It is valuable and it should be followed. But if I'm presented with two wrong choices or two right choices, how do I pick between the two which is more consistent with the character of God's love? Love is the highest virtue in God's character. And it serves as our guide in that gray area. Hierarchical ethics is what we see in Scripture. Let me give you a couple case studies. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the Bible, right? Let's look at the story of Rahab and Joshua 2. The Jews have just come out of 40 years in the desert. God is finally ready to give them the promised land. And they come up and standing on the border is this incredible city, fortified city of Jericho with walls like they have never seen before. How are they going to take this city that God has told them to take? We read in Joshua 2 verse 1 that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, who lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she replied to the king, yes, the men did come to me, but I I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at the dark, the men went out. She lied. She knew exactly who they were. When she met them, she said, oh my gosh, you're the Jewish people? the one who God did all that stuff in Egypt. I heard about the plagues. I'm on your side. That's what she said. She said, will you let me be on your team? Because Jericho, I believe in your God. And they were like, yeah. Our God welcomes all people who want to be on his side. And you can be with us. And then the king of Jericho comes knocking. And Rahab hides them and lies. She says, I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Clearly, Rahab lied. And the deontologist would have to say she was wrong. She did the wrong thing. She should have told the truth. She broke God's law. The consequentialist looks at Rahab and says, ah, she was right. It was good for her to lie because God's people were protected. And so lying is good in this case, right? The situational ethicist says Rahab was right because she was true to herself. She did what she thought was best and good for her. Lie away, Rahab. The hierarchical ethic says lying is wrong and It was wrong to lie, but she did the best thing that she could given the options that were before her. We don't change and say lying is now good, but we say you were given two choices, Rahab, neither good. Lie or allow God's people to be killed, and you chose the better part. You chose love as your ethical guide here. Think about her options. She could tell the truth. If she tells the truth, she keeps the law. She does not bear false witness. That's kept, right? But she breaks the law. You shall have no other gods before me. Because what this whole thing is about is destroying this evil, wicked system that Jericho is a part of of false idol worship that involves killing babies. And God wants to wipe this religion from the face of the earth because they're burning children alive. And if Rahab helps these people, she is betraying God's purposes and helping them. She is putting another God before her God. So she can break thou shalt not bear false witness and keep you shall have no other gods. Or she can keep, you shall have no other gods, and break being a false witness. She can refuse to speak. That's another option she has here, right? She can just stay silent. The king sends people, you know, they say, where are these men? And she's like, and they're like, why won't you answer us? And she's just, Super suspicious, right? Not going to help. Maybe, okay, so she doesn't bear false witness here, right? But she doesn't help. They're going to get caught. They're going to be like, search her house, right? When you don't talk, they're like, you're guilty. And so again, how does she keep that part of the law? She would be betraying God's purposes. The third thing she can do is she can lie. In doing so, she breaks one of the Ten Commandments you shall not bear false witness. And we don't say lying becomes good here. Lying is bad. Lying is always bad, it's just not always the worst thing. And sometimes in a fallen, broken world, you have to choose between something bad and something worse. And she chooses to uphold, You shall have no other gods before me. Is it right? I'm telling you it's right. But who am I? That's like my opinion, right? Uh, let's look at scripture. She didn't have an option that kept all of God's laws because she lives in a fallen world, but James chapter 2 verses 25 tells us in the same way Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? See, I'm not making this up. It's not my opinion. This is the way that we see Scripture operating and see believers throughout history being forced into these ethical dilemmas. Love is the guide. Love, he says... In verse 10, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It is all about love. And Jesus teaches us exactly the same thing. Look in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six. 36. Teacher, they ask him, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and all the prophets depend. It's such a great thing. The whole Bible can be summed up. Love God and love one another. Anything that you do that deviates from that is wrong. Wow. Wow. Let's look at another case example that Jesus brings up of hierarchical ethics. Matthew 12, 1 through 13. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Uh Uh-oh, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They're grabbing a snack, eating it. What does the deontologist say? You broke the law. You worked. You harvested working is harvesting. Harvesting is working. You do not work on the Sabbath. And our local deontologists, the Pharisees, show up and say, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, picking heads of grain. Jesus answers them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. I love it. Jesus is so great. He he brings up another moral dilemma. He says, you think what they're doing is wrong. What do you think about when David, see, David is of the tribe of Judah. He's a king. He's not a priest. And there was bread that was baked every day. God always wanted his house to smell like fresh baked bread. (laughs) It was one of his rules. And they would take the bread at the end of the day and they would store it. And only the priests could eat the, the previous day's bread. And David is on the run. He's got soldiers with him. They're starving. And he comes to the house of God and he's like, do you guys have any food? And they're like, just the food, but only the priests can eat it. The law is clear. But David's like, can you work with me here? You know? And the priest is like, so you guys are out warring? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, are you raping and pillaging? And he's like, nope, no rape, no pillage. And he's like... Okay, eat the bread. (laughs) Don't starve. Surely God would rather you live and that that law would be more important here. And and so Jesus brings it up as an example in this context. Which is more important, he says, to the Pharisees? Was it wrong for David to do what he did? You can see the Pharisees. The deontologist is like... They can't answer because their system is wrong. They can't live consistently, and they know. They know. They they don't live consistently with their own ethical system, and there is a problem with that. He goes on. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests and the temple desecrate the day, yet are innocent? What about that? The, the, The law says you shall not work on the Sabbath. Every priest I know works on the Sabbath. How does that work? It doesn't say you can't, that you can work on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is doing is saying, you're a deontologist, you're a ridiculous person, okay? And this whole system where you're trying to rigidly follow, you miss the point. The point is not follow the rules. The point is love. The point is Love. Why can't a priest work on the Sabbath? How are they allowed to do that? Because the law is not meant to be put under a microscope and followed in every single circumstance, in every single way. We're supposed to have common sense. And we're supposed to work together with God to understand his will. And understanding God's will is all about understanding God's love. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you'll take hold of it and lift it out, won't you? You won't be like, oh, it's the Sabbath. That sheep has to die. No. And how much more valuable are you than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he heals somebody. And they're like, he healed on the Sabbath. And they completely miss the point. Do you see how he's giving them a lecture in hierarchical ethics? The principle of love is what guides us when we're faced with these moral, ethical dilemmas. And the law of love, the law of God, is clear in most circumstances. Like I said, we do not rewrite the law of God. We follow it because it is good. But when it's not clear... We choose love as the highest ethic because Scripture tells us that's what we should do. We have to understand the point. The point of the law is to lead us closer and into more of a love relationship with God and with our neighbor. Love is the overriding principle. We look again, 1 John 4, 8 through 11. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But the love of God, this is the love of God manifest in us. God is love. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on and says, this is the love of God, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. You see, the really important question, I hope that I've at least succeeded in helping you see the importance of this entire argument. Love is the highest ethic. Love should be the guide in all things, that we, in the way that we interact with each other. The law of God is good, but love is the ultimate moral guide for making these decisions. And it then begs the question, doesn't it? Well, what do we mean when we say love? You got to get that right or the whole system fails, doesn't it? You just plug in (coughs) what feels good. That's love. And the whole system breaks. Because love, according to Scripture, is not a feeling, Love is a choice. And the ultimate form of love, the definition of love from a biblical standpoint is Jesus Christ on the cross. What is love? This is answering that question. We know what love is in that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. As we shook our fists and rebelled and set ourselves up to be our own gods, as we murdered one another and raped and pillaged and destroyed and lifted ourselves up, as we brought all the evil and calamity of the world down, crashing upon our fellow man, when we were created for the purpose of loving our fellow man, God decided to dwell among us. He decided to move right in to the mess that we have created. And he decided to demonstrate mercy and compassion and peace and patience and kindness and truth. And we killed him for it. He represented a threat to us that he would want to change who was on the throne of our lives. We want to be our own gods. And that is the one thing that he cannot, that he will not allow because it's just not true. So we falsely accused him. We humiliated him. We mocked him. We beat him and we nailed him to a cross. And while he hung there dying, an innocent, person. God took all the wrath and all the punishment for all of the human race and he poured it out upon himself and the person of Jesus Christ. Not because we deserved it, but because he is good and he loves us. And that is love. That is so important that we understand love is initiating what is best for someone else at great cost to yourself without expecting or demanding anything in return. While we were yet his enemies, he died for us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. That's what's at the heart of that ethical system that is so important that we understand. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Look at what God did for you on the cross and let that be your standard for how you treat everyone else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the prophets depend on that truth. And that's why love becomes that ethical guide. The cross becomes our guide for how we are to serve and love and choose and navigate ourselves through this complicated moral dilemma. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The one thing that makes you stand out, that should make you stand out as a follower of God is the way you treat each other. Love, he says, we should be loving one another and not just the believers in this room, but the neighbors who don't know God, the co-workers who hate us, the family members who have rejected us, we should love them with a sense of urgency. And he finishes our passage in verse 11 with, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The time that we have to show that love, to demonstrate that love, to give that love is short. It is as short as your life is. And you have no idea how many days you have left. You have no idea how many days you have to show God's love to people who don't know him. And even if you live to a 100 years, that will be so short in the face of the eternity that you will enjoy as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a desperately urgent situation that needs our action right now because we do not know how long we have. So what do we do? Well, firstly... You've got to receive God's love through Jesus Christ. If you're here, if you got dragged here by mom this morning, we're so glad you're here. Or if you're a mom that got dragged here by your kids, what they want for you, what they want you to know more than anything else is that God loves you and he wants to be in your life. And they're hoping and they're praying and they've been doing it for a long time that you would come to know God's love so that you could be changed by it and become somebody who can love others with the love that God has for you. And that's what you do first. You don't get out the list and make you know all the things that are going to have to change in your life and you don't start thinking, how am I going to fit church into my schedule and all these other things? No. Those decisions come later. Right now, There's just one question between you and your maker. Will you receive his love and his forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Or will you leave here continuing in the futile effort to be your own God? Those of us who have made that decision, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Accept his gift and his love and let it change you like it has begun to change us. Secondly, we have to allow the the guiding principle of love to come into our lives in a real way because a lot of us understand these things, but we don't think it through. We have very compartmentalized lives. We live one way, and we're doing one thing, and we're working another way and another thing, and we are faced with these moral dilemmas all the time, but we haven't really thought through how we make such decisions It's so important that we lead into these things, that we don't approach morality in a passive way where we find ourselves suddenly needing to make a decision right now and having no sense of how to make that decision. We need to establish that framework and be representatives of God. We cannot let our culture be our moral guide. Our culture does not know what right and wrong are it moves increasingly away the, away from the light of God and into the shadows of confusion and darkness. And as we look out and see what's happening with our neighbors and our family members and our friends, and we see how confused they are, how empty they are, how alone they are, how afraid they are, because as their moral system collapse, they find nothing but emptiness inside. And questions that can't be answered. But questions that God has the answer to. You can't just be told what to do. A lot of you want that. I mentioned abortion. And I mentioned waterboarding. And I mentioned gay marriage. And a lot of you want me to just tell you what the answers are. And there are clear guidance in Scripture on those things. But we're not here to answer those questions for you. We're here to equip you to come to the conclusions from reading Scripture with your conscience before God as a mature follower of Jesus Christ. We don't want to give you answers. We want to give you what you need to discover the answers from God's own mouth, not a fallen human preacher, but the Word of God. No. We can't answer those questions for you in every situation. There are some things where the Bible is very clear, and we're on record with that. You want to find out What we think, what I think the Bible teaches about homosexuality, go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. We talk about it there. You want to find out about issues of abortion or waterboarding? You want to decide who to vote for in the next election? Do not come to me. Go to your Word, go to your Bibles, go to the Lord in prayer. And make a mature decision as somebody who understands the law of love. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. There you have the end of Romans 13. We pray, God, for anyone here that doesn't know you that has been introduced to the idea of your love for the first time or maybe it's sunk in in a way that it hasn't before. We just ask, God, that they will, they will sense your presence moving toward them, that they will see that you are, have flung open the door and that, um, that you are, are pleading with them to be reconciled to you and we pray for the rest of us too, God. We, we just pray for opportunities to stand for love. And uh, that as we do that, we wouldn't judge uh, the rightness or wrongness of that stance by the amount of joy or the amount of pain that it brings into our lives, but that we would judge it by your word and the this, this sense that we have that you are good and that you are right and that you have the answers to what uh, so many of us uh, want to know, which is, what is this all about and how can I be who it is that I, I sense that I'm supposed to be? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.